You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, starting there in verse 24 of chapter 13 of Mark. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. But be on guard Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands uh, the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Uh, So last week, we began studying uh, Mark chapter 13, which is the longest uh, longest recorded teaching of Jesus found in Mark's gospel. And if you were unable to be with us last week, uh, let me just encourage you, if you have the opportunity, uh, please go back and listen to the sermon that I preached on the first 23 verses of this chapter. Uh, Not that I just want you to hear my lovely voice some more, uh, but understanding what I said in those previous verses will help you to understand the rest of this chapter that we're looking at today. So if you have a smartphone, a tablet, a computer, uh, you can go to our church's website, you can listen to the podcast. Uh, Just sometime this week, it'll help you have a a better understanding of some of the things that you may have missed from last week. But uh, for those who uh, maybe weren't here last week, or those who have a uh, less than ideal memory, such as myself, Uh, Let me at least give you a a quick synopsis of of what we talked about and learned last week. Um, I said last week that Jesus' teaching uh, at the Mount of Olives is often seen as a sermon about his second coming, where Jesus is predicting events that will take place long into the future at the onset of the end times. So many people read this text, and they try to find some sort of connection with whatever headlines happen to be on the front pages of our newspapers. 
when the Twin Towers fell and war erupted in the Middle East, you know, many saw that as a sign that the apocalypse was about to begin, or now that the Taliban are in control in Afghanistan and the United States is retreating from the Middle East, surely this must be a sign of the apocalypse. Uh, anywhere there are wars or rumors of wars or earthquakes or famines, etc., uh, we're quick to say this must be it. Uh, the end times are near. But last week, I argued that most of what we read about in this chapter uh, is not actually a reference to the end of the whole world, rather just the end of the world as the disciples knew it. Uh, they're not primarily about the second coming of Christ, uh, but rather about the destruction of the second temple that was in Jerusalem, Herod's temple the temple that Jesus flipped over tables in, the temple that he has been teaching in, his predictions have primarily been about its destruction, which we know happened in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus's death. So as we finish out chapter 13 this week, you have to keep all of that in mind because even what Jesus is going to talk about in many of these verses we're going to study today, uh, he, he says that they will be fulfilled before this generation passes. Uh, and since the last time I checked, none of the disciples were still alive on this earth. That means that that generation has passed. Uh, so some or many of these predictions then must already have been fulfilled. So let me suggest an outline for you to kind of help you understand when Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and when he is speaking about his second coming. Uh, notice there in verse 24 where Jesus speaks about those days. Uh, from verse 24 to 31, as Jesus is speaking about those days, he is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But then, notice in verse 32, he, he makes a transition. Jesus says, but concerning that day. So everything from verse 32 to 37 He's no longer talking about the destruction of the temple, but rather about Jesus's second coming at the end of the age. So there were predictions Jesus made that were fulfilled by the end of the first century. There are other predictions that have yet to be fulfilled, and only God the Father knew when they would take place. Uh, so let's first turn our attention to verses 24 through 31, to Jesus's predictions that deal with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And these verses, I want to I show you here how Jesus's words offer more hope than you realize. I, I know many people who believe these verses, uh, you know, are speaking about Christ's Return his second coming, uh, and they find great hope in them, knowing that Jesus will one day return to dwell uh, with his people for all eternity. Uh, and don't get me wrong, that is a great hope. There is great hope in that reality. 
But I want to suggest to you that Jesus's words here actually have even more hope to offer than just a distant promise that he will eventually return. And to show you that, I want to work us through these verses, focusing on two more signs that Jesus says will precede the destruction of the temple. The first sign is the Son of Man coming in clouds, and the second sign is the angels which will gather the elect. So let's look at this first sign about the Son of Man coming in clouds. Verse 24, let me reread that again. We're told that in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in glory with great power and glory. Now, many of you will read these verses and think clearly this must be a reference to the second coming of Christ. There's no way that he could already be talking about something that has happened in the first century. I mean, it even says that the Son of Man, which is Jesus, will come in clouds with great power and glory. Uh, so surely these verses must be referring to something that is going to happen at the end of the age when Jesus will return. But before you jump to any conclusions, uh, before you think that your pastor has too much time on his hands and he just sits in his office and thinks too much and reads too many commentaries, uh, but before we jump to any conclusions, I, I want you to try to forget all that you know about this passage. Uh, forget any uh, left-behind books you may have read, uh, any YouTube videos or documentaries you might have watched with someone who is a quote-unquote apocalypse expert. Uh, try to forget all of that and just pretend for a moment that you were living in the first century and you're reading these verses for the very first time. How would you understand them? Uh, Mark's gospel it was written probably in the late 50s, so about 30 years, give or take, after Jesus' death. So if you were one of the first readers of this gospel, there's a good chance that you actually lived during much of the life of Christ. And even if you didn't personally see Jesus during his ministry, even if you weren't personally at his crucifixion, there's a particular detail of his crucifixion that you'd still remember. Now, the Gospels tell us that for three hours, there was darkness across the land as Jesus was crucified. So the sun was darkened. That the moon was not giving any light. It was like the, the stars had all fallen from heaven because for three hours while Jesus was dying on the cross, there was nothing but darkness. Just as Jesus predicts here in these verses in Mark chapter 13. And if you were living in the first century, uh, you may have very well heard stories uh, that happened at Jesus' trial, 
If you were living in Jerusalem, you might have even been a spectator at some of those events or knew others who had been. And at that trial, as Jesus was being questioned by the Sanhedrin, these were his final words at that trial. Mark, or Matthew records them in chapter 26, verse 64. He says that Jesus told them at the Sanhedrin, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus uses the same language that he did at his trial that, that he also used at the Mount of Olives in this sermon that we are studying, which is also the same language used in the prophecies of Daniel chapter 7. There is one who is a son of man, which means he is human, but he comes on the clouds from heaven, which isn't referring to Jesus's mode of transportation. Uh, he didn't ride around on clouds like you and I would ride around on a bicycle. Uh, this is a reference to his divinity. He's a son of man, so he's human, but simultaneously he is of heavenly origin. He comes from the clouds above, which means he's not just fully man, he's also fully God. And at Jesus' trial, note what he says. Again, Mark, Matthew 26, verse 64, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He says, from now on. This isn't just a singular one-time event Jesus is talking about, like Jesus' return at the end of the age will be. This is something that is ongoing. This is something that is going to happen from now on. Jesus is talking about the inauguration of his kingdom and his reign over it, which doesn't just begin at some distant point in the far future. It'll begin the moment that he walks out of the tomb after his crucifixion. After Jesus' trial, uh, he'll be hung on a cross. The whole earth will go dark for three hours. Stars, moons, the, the sun, the, they're going to all withhold their light. Uh, but three days later, and Jesus will walk right out of that grave. And he will ascend to his heavenly throne and he will seat himself at the right hand of God the Father and his kingdom will be at hand and he will rule over that kingdom from now on. So when Jesus says in Mark chapter 13 that the powers in the heavens will be shaken, that is what he is referring to. Jesus' death burial, and resurrection will turn the spiritual world upside down. It will shake Satan and the powers of darkness to their very core. And this means that you and I don't just have some comfort of some distant promise that Jesus will maybe one day come back again. 
You have the comfort and the hope that comes from the reality that Jesus is right now reigning with great power and glory even as we speak. And he will continue to rule in power until one day he will return. So these verses don't just provide you hope for the future. They give you hope for today. So that's the first sign of the Son of Man coming in clouds. Let's look at the second sign that he gives with the angels gathering the elect. If you were a Jew or Gentile living in the first century, reading Mark's gospel for the first time, how would you understand Jesus's words in verse 27 when he says he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven? First, you have to ask yourself, what is meant by the word angel? Those of us living in modern Western societies often have a lot of preconceived ideas when it comes to angels. We think of them as these cute, chubby little beings with wings and halos. But that Greek word angelos, it literally means messenger. So anyone who is sent to proclaim a message in a technical sense is an angel. Even humans can be angels in the sense that they are messengers. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, there's a story where you have King Saul who's trying to kill David. And we're told that he sent messengers to David's house to try to find him. And that if you read the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it literally says that Saul sent angels to his house. But we don't interpret that verse to mean that Saul had his own little army of winged creatures at his disposal. No, these were human angels. They were people like you and I who were Saul's aides sent to find David. So if you were one of the original readers of Mark's gospel back in the first century, how would you understand verse 27? If you could read this in the original Greek and you saw that that what was written where it says he will send out messengers to gather his elect from the ends of the earth. How would you interpret that? Especially in light of verse 30, which then says This generation will not pass until all of these things take place. Well, the more time that passed after Christ's departure, the more difficult it would be for you to assume that Jesus was referring to spiritual beings like cherubim or seraphim gathering up the church at the end of the age. Uh, Because to think that, you'd have to play a game of Bible gymnastics to kind of twist that word generation to make it mean something completely different that it was never intended to mean. So so the only way to, to really understand these messengers that Mark speaks about is as a foreshadowing of the early church. Apostles like Peter, James, John, missionaries like Paul and Barnabas, they were angels or messengers that were sent out to the ends of the earth to proclaim the greatest message 
that ever existed. The good news of Jesus Christ. That word gospel, it literally translates to the good news. They were sent out. These messengers of the early church were sent out to the elect, to those who had been chosen by God's grace to receive his salvation. And that's what Jesus is referring to in this prediction. And again, that doesn't just give you a hope in the far distant future that at some unknown point, God will finally send down from heaven these army of winged creatures to gather up his church. Uh, This passage actually helps you understand that what Jesus predicted has actually already come to pass. Jesus sent out the early church to gather those he had called to salvation from the four corners of earth. And if Jesus was faithful to bring those living in the first century to salvation, then you can have the confidence that he will continue drawing those, even in the 21st century, to salvation as well. These verses provide hope not just for the future, they provide hope for us even today. So you have these two signs that Jesus predicts, uh, the Son of Man coming in clouds and the angels or messengers that will gather up the elect. And we know that this will happen very soon because verse 28, Jesus then reminds his disciples about the lesson of the fig tree. And it may seem weird for Jesus to all of a sudden start talking about a fig tree. Uh, But you have to remember that he just cursed a fig tree the day before as he and his disciples were walking into the temple. And now in his teaching at the Mount of Olives, he tells his disciples to learn from the lesson of this fig tree, knowing that the branches that a fig tree uh, bears, the, when, it, when it bears leaves, that means that summer is near. So all of these signs Jesus is speaking about are likewise indicators that a new spiritual season is near as well. The fig tree outside of the temple had leaves on it, uh, which was a sign of summer quickly approaching, but it, it wasn't bearing any fruit which is why Jesus cursed it. And Jesus' time, if you remember, as he he spent around the temple teaching there, it showed him that it was no longer bearing fruit either. The Jewish sacrificial system had become so convoluted and broken and consumed by hypocrisy, so it too will soon be cursed. And destroyed. And so all of these predictions of Jesus that we have been looking at are like the leaves of a fig tree, acting as indicators that a new season will soon be ushered in. And with this new season will be a new covenant. And just like the new life that comes into bloom in the spring and summer, this new covenant of Jesus will offer new spiritual life. As well. So, so far from this text, uh, we've seen how Jesus' words offer more hope than you realize. 
That's what you learn uh, from verses 24 through 31. Uh, These aren't just some distant promises that will come to fruition later in time. Uh, These were promises fulfilled in the first century uh, that offered hope to those in Jesus's day uh, that offer hope to you and I as well. Uh, The Son of Man is still seated in clouds of heaven. He is reigning in power. He is still sending forth his church as messengers to proclaim the gospel to all of the corners of the earth. Uh, But next, let's look to verses 32 through 37 and see how Jesus's words are also more challenging than you realize. They offer more hope than you realize but they're also more challenging than you realize. Uh, Verse 32 is that transition I was talking about. Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, uh, so Jesus is no longer talking about first century predictions. He's talking about the second coming at the end of the age. And he says of this event that no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son but only the Father. Up until now, uh, Jesus has been very detailed, very specific in his predictions. He's talked about the sun being darkened, uh, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, uh, not to mention all of those predictions from the first 23 verses we looked at last week. From famines to earthquakes to war, Uh, he's been very, very detailed about all of that. But then, verse 32, he switches gears to talk about the end of the whole world at the end of the age. And it's interesting that he doesn't have many details to give. I mean, he gave a, a plethora of signs to signify the temple's destruction, but there doesn't seem to be any signs that will mark Christ's return. He simply says about that day, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. So evidently, there are some things that not even Jesus knew. When the son of God took on flesh and he became human, there were certain rights and privileges and even knowledge that he voluntarily gave up in that process of becoming man. And the timing of his second coming was one of them. And the question you should ask then is why? Why would Jesus not know the timing of his own return? That seems something very weird not to know. I mean, he's God. He could rightfully have had access to that information if he wanted it. Yet it seems as though he voluntarily limited his own knowledge and let access to that information be restricted to God the Father alone. And so the question we should be asking is, is why? And the answer is that Jesus wanted to show you an example of what it looked like to faithfully depend upon the Lord and to stay alert, and to stay awake, waiting for his return. Even though he was God, Jesus didn't know when the second coming would be. So like his human brothers and sisters, he had to patiently wait and trust 
in the Father's timing. And the importance of this spiritual alertness uh, and that need to stay awake, it shouldn't be underestimated. Jesus mentions it four different times in these last few verses. He says things like, be on guard, keep awake. I say to all, stay awake. He brings it up four different times. And he even tells this short parable about a man who went on a journey and he left his servants in charge while he was away. And since that master could return in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or even in the morning, the servants had to always be ready, lest he come suddenly and find them asleep. And as we think about these verses, I want to ask, what is the significance of staying awake? Why does Jesus seem to think that this is so important? To put it another way, you could ask, what's so dangerous about being spiritually sleepy? Let me offer you two dangers of a sleepy heart. Number one, a sleepy heart is dangerous because of how easy it is to go from being sleepy to asleep. There's a very fine line between the two. You close your eyes for a moment just to rest, and then the rest is history. You think you're going to lay down for just a moment, but then within another minute, you're already snoring. I watched a documentary clip a while back about a missionary who was recounting a conversation he had had with these two Iranian Christians. Uh, This married couple had had the opportunity to move to America, uh, so they took the chance for the greater religious freedom it would afford them. Uh, But after just a few months of living in the United States, this wife began pleading with her husband for them to return to Iran. And the husband thought that his wife must be losing her mind uh, because why would you knowingly move back to a country with such an intense persecution when you could live in a place of such safety and comfort? Uh, But this is what she told her husband. She said she felt like there was a satanic lullaby luring the American church to sleep. The church in America was sleepy And the longer she stayed, the more she was getting sleepy, too. So she'd rather take her chances back in Iran. The wife knew the dangers of a sleepy heart. She she knew that they were greater than any threat that could come from persecution or anything else. Because it is too easy to go from just being spiritually complacent to being completely incapacitated by the enemy, to go from just being comfortable to comatose, to go from being tired of fighting against your sins to giving up on fighting against your sin, to go from just dragging your feet when it comes to spiritual disciplines like prayer, and scripture meditation to drifting away from those disciplines all together. The enemy knows 
that it is far easier to fight against a sleeping foe. So this world has been littered with spiritual tranquilizers designed to keep you from staying awake. Movies, television, social media, smartphones, screens of every other kind, this world is filled with cheap entertainment singing you lullabies, making your heart and your mind drowsy and drunk, slowly leading your soul down that slippery slope, moving you from a heart that is just sleepy to one that is outright asleep. That's danger number one. Number two, a sleepy heart is dangerous because there will be no signs or alarms to wake you back up. Jesus taught that the temple's destruction would be preceded by many signs, but Christ's return will have none. He will come like a thief in the night. As you read Mark chapter 13, it is full of signs that foreshadow what's to come, except when it comes to Jesus's return. There are no warning signs or alarm bells to signal that arrival. Uh, If Jesus himself didn't know the day or hour, then you can rest assured that none of us will ever have access to that information. Since there are no signs or alarms to serve as a warning or a wake-up call before that day, you must always be diligent to stay awake, lest you find yourself asleep when Jesus returns. A number of years ago, I worked the third shift at a group home for individuals with disabilities. I would arrive at 11 o'clock at night after the clients were already in bed, and I'd leave at 7 a.m. just as they were waking up. Uh, which meant I had uh, no real responsibilities except just to be there in case of an emergency. Uh, so the job was, was pretty simple. I was allowed to watch movies or TV all night. Uh, I could read books. I could do homework. Pretty much whatever I wanted, uh, there was only one unbreakable rule to follow, and that was to stay awake. Uh, Periodically, uh, one of my supervisors would come uh, to make a surprise visit to check on me. So at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, one of them would sometimes show up to make sure that I hadn't fallen asleep. And let me tell you, there is no better motivation to stay awake than when you know that you are likely to be fired if you don't. Uh, There'd be times when I'd be watching a movie I'd be all by myself in the middle of the night. I would just start to doze off and I'd hear a noise. And maybe it was nothing but just an animal or even just the wind, Uh, but it would be enough to make me jump right out of my seat and run to the window to see if a car was pulling up. And then I'd have to go brew another pot of coffee. I'd have to maybe walk some laps around the living room, uh, just trying to wake myself back up because I always needed to be alert and ready. And when we think about this time since Christ's departure, we realize that the night has been long, almost 2,000 years long. And it would be easy to think that since he hasn't yet returned, then surely he won't return in our lifetime. 
But you have no guarantee of that because no one knows the day or the hour. So if this were the day, I wonder what your conversation with Christ would look like. Uh, Would you be ready or would you have to give him a list of excuses? Would you have to tell him that you had thought about sharing the gospel with your neighbor, that you had meant to start that Bible study, that you had planned to spend more time in prayer, that you had intended to do all of those things, but time just kind of slipped away and you took a moment to rest your eyes and then before you knew it, Jesus had come back and now there was no more time. If Jesus were to come back today, would he find you hard at work or would he find you asleep somewhere over in the corner. Jesus's words are more challenging than you realize because it is difficult, if not impossible, to always perfectly be vigilant and spiritually alert. And you don't have to look any further than to the disciples themselves to see this to be true. I mean, just look at what will happen in two days after Jesus is done teaching his disciples here on the Mount of Olives. 48 hours after this very warning that he gives, just look at what happens. Uh, In the Garden of Gethsemane, he'll tell the disciples to keep watch, to stay awake as he goes to pray, but they will all fall asleep, allowing him to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, to be pointed out by Judas and arrested and tried and convicted and sentenced to death. So the disciples couldn't stay physically awake. And our spiritual lives are no different. Uh, Not one of us has faithfully stayed awake like Jesus has asked. We have all failed in one way or another. But praise the Lord that Jesus stayed awake even when we couldn't. In that garden, he stayed awake praying on our behalf. He spent a sleepless night crying out to the Father, saying, not my will, but thy will be done. And only his determination to stay awake and to keep going, even when everyone else slept, only that determination which kept him going all the way to the very cross could ever provide us with any hope. If you're not a Christian this morning, then know that you are living a life that is in the spiritual equivalent of a coma. You may feel like you're awake and alert, uh, but that's really just a dream. And it's only by looking to the power of Jesus's resurrection that you can be awakened into spiritual life. Unless Christ himself nudges you awake by showing you the depths of your sin and the hope that is only found in his death, burial, and resurrection, unless he does that, you are going to remain in a spiritual slumber. But even once you have been shaken awake to new life with Christ, even once you have submitted yourself to his lordship, It's still only by continually being alert and diligently looking for and longing for his return that you can stay awake. So we should live as though each 
And every day could be the day that Jesus will come back. Because the reality is that any day could be that day. So let me pray. Father, uh, we've seen this world is a dark and broken place. There is an enemy out there trying to lure us to sleep by singing us his lullabies, by filling this world with spiritual tranquilizers. So, Father, I pray that, that you would just keep us from the hands of the enemy. Keep us instead wrapped safe in your arms and let us continually be alert and awake and working diligently as though Christ may return today. Because he could return any day, Father. So I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.